The restaurant industry has been fighting for survival over the last two years, and our greatest resource in this fight has been our people. The men and women who have poured, served, seated, greeted, and worked tirelessly to keep our industry going. Yelp for Restaurants believes now is the perfect time to recognize their efforts and give back to those that have given us so much with the creation of The Servies, a first-of-its-kind set of awards celebrating front-of-house workers. Winners receive a beautifully designed Servies trophy, a free pair of snib shoes, and a $3,000 tip. That's right. $3,000 in their pocket. Know someone deserving of a service award? Maybe they work at your restaurant. Visit theservies.com today and nominate them for a chance to win. Let's support the service industry together. Do so by nominating someone today. No purchase necessary. Must be 18 or older and a U.S. resident. Eight nominated contest winners will receive a prize of $3,000. Nominations must be submitted between August 3rd, 2022 and August 24th, 2022. See official rules available at theservies.com. Now here we go. I can't tell you how many managers I had interviewed over the years that said 10 years GM experience. They didn't have 10 years. They had one year 10 times over. They never developed. They never learned new skills. They never took more people to the next level with them. They just kept doing the same stuff year after year. And I think that's the opportunity for us is, yeah, continue to serve our guests, but to really take care of each other. Welcome to Full Comp a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Sean Finter is a hospitality legend. He went from opening bars and restaurants across Australia to starting Bar Metrics, one of the most influential restaurant solution services on the planet. He also wrote the book on building a successful hospitality business, a book that Diageo bought and distributed globally. And today, he's a coach. But coach doesn't do justice to the support Sean provides. Sean coaches incredibly successful hospitality professionals at the highest level. And in this conversation, he shares the same lessons he teaches them with us today. So the ripe age of 12 years old, growing <laughs> up in Canada, believe it or not, dishwashing at a truck stop was like my dream job for three or four years. I had a paper route, which of course is outdoors in 30 below Canada, I pumped gas, and I shoveled snow in the winter. So the idea of working in a truck stop beside a hot, steamy dishwasher with beautiful waitresses, cool kids from school and earning money and free lunches. It honestly, was a dream job for me. And I can tell you that whatever else I tell you today, like that place had as much to do with my success as anywhere. It's a place that changed my life. The guy that owns it changed the life of hundreds and hundreds of people like me, like misfits that were struggling in school, getting in trouble with the police, didn't feel like they fit in anywhere. Hockey was my ticket out, then it wasn't. I knew school wasn't going to be my ticket out. And he believed in me before I believed in myself. And even as a dishwasher for him, he said, why shouldn't I hire a 14-year-old? And I said, I'll outwork him, sir. You can count on me and so forth. He said, I need you to be the best dishwasher that I've ever had. And he showed me how to do that. There's an art to washing dishes and pots and loading a dishwasher and how you stack in the kitchen and how you work around the cooks who are under a lot of pressure and how you interact with the, the waitresses and the servers and 
it was a magical time in my life and might sound funny to hear, but it was the first time in my life I felt successful. I was complimented by everybody. I was faster. I was more efficient. I did things that other dishwashers wouldn't do. And I knew I was onto something in this industry. And from there, I'd say the only position I wasn't very good at is being a server. And I have a lot of respect for servers. I'm very clumsy. So I really took to bartending. Bartended with Hard Rock in Toronto, taught me an awful lot. And that's a company that gave me an opportunity to go to London to do some training. And for a small town kid from Canada who had only ever been to the States to play hockey, it was a real eye-opener. It just changed my life. From there, the story, as I tell it, it's even hard to believe because what's a kid without a high school diploma from a town of 2,000 people really capable of? And, and I found out. I put myself beside some of the best people in the industry and opened a big bar at Piccadilly Circus as one of the opening team for a big sports bar. That project was run by a consulting company that after writing, I think, 58 or 59 letters to the company, they finally took me on. And there I was, you know, I don't want to say a consultant, but there I was, a kid running coffees and, and photocopies for consultants. Another game changer for me. Got to work all over Europe on projects. Got to, I got into recruitment and, and finding great bartenders, servers, managers. I uh, helped open a bunch of bars. And it kind of gave me my start. And, and then I got into some turnaround projects with them. And from there, the first time they sent me to Australia, I knew I was home. I landed in Sydney. I was there for six hours. I went to a phone box. I'm not old and called my mom and said, I'm <laughs> never coming home. Like this is just paradise on earth. Uh, I was there for 10 years. I had eight bars and restaurants of my own. Started my family there. Started my businesses there. I miss it every day, but I've been back in the in North America in the US for 12 years now and found a new life for myself over here. Let's talk about the bars and restaurants in Australia. So before the age of 30, you were a multi-unit owner. And I would argue that most folks struggle to keep one restaurant or bar open. What do you think you did right? What did you know that other people did? Well, I think there's two things that I was very fortunate to have learned in London. Is One is like you have to figure out your DNA as an operator. Like what style of business gives you energy? What type of employee do you want to serve? What hours do you want your business to trade in when it takes a bulk of its money? So I got very good at saying no to a lot of opportunities that I probably wouldn't have had I not understood that because once your business sucks the life out of you, there's nothing left. So I figured out pretty quickly that a box that's around this size that I could do two to $5 million in per location. I like beer, whiskey, tequila. We didn't do high-end cocktails. I kept food to a minimum. So that was one aspect of it. I guess the other is, is that bars and restaurants aren't nearly as risky as some people make them out to be. Put it this way, if I went into opening a hardware store tomorrow, I'd be bankrupt in 90 days. Right? I don't know anything about it. Bars and mm -hmm. restaurants are extremely formulaic. right? And yeah, there are a lot of variables with the marketing and trying to attract the right guests and take care of them and so forth. But the real crux of the business, there's a formula to it. And I'm, I'm a very disciplined guy. And I surround myself with disciplined people and we followed the process and we saw it through and I understood how to write a plan and how to execute a plan and to not panic when things didn't go according to plan. We just called an audible and, and then we saw it through and I took over eight businesses that were in receivership. Well, not all were, they were on their way to being in receivership, but half of them had declared and half of them were about to declare. Mm -hmm. And these are clearly people that had given it their all and lost a ton of money. 
And all eight of those places, our blended profitability when I sold the group was 18.6% net profits. My goal was 15 plus, and I knew what I had to do to get there, and, and I saw the plan through. On a personal level, what did your day-to-day look like back then, helming eight locations? Well, in, in the beginning, I had three places up and running within two and a half years, and my life was a shit show. I had started my family at that point. My daughter, Macy, was born. Was a terrible father in the beginning, an absentee father, you know. And when I was home, I bet you people wished I wasn't because I was just grumpy and high on caffeine, and I just didn't do it right in the beginning. I put way too much in and didn't know what I didn't know. I got a coach. I joined EO. Getting a coach was interesting because there was no restaurant, bar, restaurant coach available to me. But I got a business coach, and what I knew from London was that business is business. Like everyone sells, everyone markets, everyone has ops. And getting a coach changed everything for me. One of the first things that he asked me was, I had an opportunity to pick up two more bars. And he said, why? You know, why do you want you have three and you're having some personal issues? By the way, I was almost 300 pounds pushing up against a heart attack. And he said, why would you want? And I said, oh, I just want more. And he said, well, more is not a strategy. What do you want more of? And well, I wanted more profit so I could take care of my family. And he said, well, your business are making around 5 or 6%. Like, why don't you triple your profitability here and have two less venues to look after? And it was just like a light switch going off, like, you know, milk your cows and get those producing at an optimal level. And I did that first, and then I expanded. And the second half of my time, I only had the bars for six years before I was bought out. And we sold mm-hmm. the $33 million company. But the first half and second half were unrecognizable to each other, right? Like, to be on it on my own. The truth is, I don't think I would have gone broke. I hope I wouldn't have, <laughs> but I wouldn't have made nearly as much money and I might have killed myself, right? 300 pounds running around at that pace. I remember very clearly the year Red Bull came into Australia, right? Like I was drinking six to eight cans of that a night, six cans of Coke, four to six coffees in the morning. Oh my God. I was on the precipice of a heart attack in hindsight. And I got a coach that just said, Hey, dude, like slow down. You know, less is more. I went from 80, 90 hours a week to 40. I went from trying to do everything myself to trying to, we were constantly, our mantra was prepare the business for sale well before I wanted to sell it. Yeah. So yeah, the first half and second half, uh, very different times in my life. And when you sold, you started another company called Bar Metrics. Why the pivot out of ownership and operations and into restaurant services? Well, so Barmetrics was a name of a piece of software I developed while I had the bar. So I was frustrated with the inventory control options and the training options in general for bartenders. So I created a bartender simulator that simulated like a customer experience so I could train all my bartenders on the same playing field rather than just trying to read from the POS and make my customers their training ground and so forth. And then the inventory control side, I was tired of seeing people come in and saying, that's 0.6 of a bottle, that's 0.7. I'd ask two different people to work for the same company. How much is here? 0.6. This guy says 0.7. So that's 10% of the bottle. And I have 400 open bottles in here, right? Like that just didn't work for me. So I developed software to do that. Not that I wanted to develop software. I wanted someone to do it for me, but it wasn't available. So when I sold the bar group, the people that bought it really didn't want the methodology and how I was running the business. They wanted the properties and the cash flow. So I kept all that. And my goal was to, I was going to take a year off. My wife at the time said to me, 
I don't think you're cut out for sitting around for a year and you're going to drive me crazy. So why don't you get a hobby, learn to surf or do something, but don't sit here all day and rearrange the furniture. So I said, I'm going to see if I can help 10 people in the areas that I was strong. And I want to help those 10 people avoid some of the mistakes that I made. So I, uh, I hung out a shingle for free. It's funny because I found it harder to give away services than I do now to sell them because people are skeptical, <laughs> right? So, but I found 10 people pretty quickly and I was loving it. And I hadn't yet disassembled my board because I was looking to buying another company. So it was supposed to be our last board meeting because I was passing on the company. I went to them and said, listen, there might be something in this consulting. And they said, well, Sean, yeah, it's pretty easy to give away your time, right? Like that's not a business. <laughs> And I said, no, imagine if I just had 100 clients a year and I went out and helped people. And I guarantee everything I do 100% doesn't work. If I do everything I say I'm going to do and you execute and it doesn't work, don't pay me. And that business went from 10 free clients to 100 paid clients in a year to being a national business in Australia in three to having offices in eight countries and 26 cities in seven. And I sold that company just two months ago, my shares to my partner who, you know, it's time for me to go. The technology is heading in a different direction. It's just not for me anymore. But I just sold it after 21 years. And, you know, it was one of the greatest joys of my life. What's so interesting to me about bar metrics is, and I'm sure you had heard it yourself throughout your career that, you know, the hospitality industry is different. We can't run by the conventional rules of business. There are all these myths around the exceptionalism within our industry, whether we're talking about difficulty, process, variability, all of that. But when you look at what you built with bar metrics, you basically took fundamentals, existing fundamentals from almost every other industry and just utilize them within the restaurant and bar industry. And I've got to believe there's some parallel to coaching as well. That, that idea kind of became a through line for you, right? You're right about that. So on the barometric side, people ask what we did. We were brilliant at the basics. Like we just worked in business fundamentals. That's all we did. And we did them better than anybody else. Because we grew bigger, we had some economy of scale. We could do it cheaper than most people could. And we guaranteed our work. And we just wanted to be an asset to the business. We had no contracts. We served almost 10,000 clients, zero contracts. Because my That's belief incredible. is... If I'm no longer happy with you, I don't want you coming into my building. I had a bunch of bars. They are your living room, right? You don't want someone who's let you down, come back. And if things go sideways in month one, you want this person to come back for 11 months. So I said, you know, sing for your supper every single time you're in front of your client and see things through. Now, the parallel with the coaching side of things, and this is what I did not get in my first couple of years of coaching, and it frustrated the shit out of me, is that, you know, it was no longer about me anymore about my capabilities and, and the way I saw business. So when you think about working with a coaching client, you now have to be part psychologist and understand where they're at right now, business-wise and personally, and then understand where they want to go. They're going to tell you their stated goals. And then you need to challenge those because like mine, I just wanted more. And if my coach had helped me get more, he'd have helped me into the grave, right? right? So why more? What do you really want? What will more give you? And so we work out, what do I really want and why? And then we have to step back from that. So, okay, here's where you're at and here's where you want to go. Now I need to understand your discipline and what you're willing to sacrifice to do that, right? For me, on most things I did, I was all in, right? That is not the average person. 
And then I need to understand their skills and experience and then lay out a path for them that breaks up into two, three, five, eight steps so that we can pivot on each one of those, right? So the work that I do with people today, 80% of it is upfront in figuring that stuff out. And once you get that, then they can take the hill. What's your specialization? What are you best in the world at and how does that inform what you teach? I guess I can answer this because a lot of people have said it to me. I think that our industry is, in some regards, very complicated. And if you can simplify it, break it down to its truest essence, and then build out from there, what does everyone need to do to make that possible? So let me give you an example. We say we're in the hospitality industry. Some people say we're in the service industry. Others say we're in the bar industry. We're in the restaurant industry. Like We don't even know what industry we're in, right? I think you've got to pick your lane and then be that. So for me, I was 100% in the hospitality industry. So if that's the case, you have to define what does hospitality mean? If you're in the bar business, what does the bar business mean? Hospitality to me refers to how somebody feels about themselves while they're in your company, Mm. right? So if I go to your restaurant, yes, I'm going to be fed. You have a commercial kitchen. I assume you can cook. Your drinks are going to be great, nice wineless. But do I feel important when I'm there? Am I seen? Am I welcome? At best, am I part of this? Am I one of you? Am I an insider in this business? Am I a VIP? Like, what am I? How do I feel about myself while I'm here? How does that show up when my friends are around? My kids are here, right? We've all been out before and been ignored and been pushed aside and been weighed and then someone was rude to us, right? That's the worst thing that can happen. So when it comes to hospitality, that's where I specialize with my clients and help them understand you can rig the game. And it is a game making people feel a certain way, like a comedian, like anyone else. It's not an act. It's who I am. But there's a formula to it that you have to execute with every guest every time. And the deal is, if you went to a bank and said, I want to get $10 million to open up this beautiful new restaurant. And they say, well, what does it depend on? Well, it depends on how somebody feels about themselves while they're in their company. Well, good. Who's going to execute on that? A 22-year-old that doesn't want to work here, that I'm not going to train. (laughs) Right? Right. You wouldn't get much money if you were honest about how this business works. How does a 22-year-old make a group of 45-year-olds feel? Old. Yeah, it's a tricky business. Everything from there down to all the basics of the business. I don't care how smart the ownership group is, even how smart the leadership team is. I have a series of litmus tests. I'll give it to any of your listeners. I'll give you one piece of paper that you can take that piece of paper, print it off for five or six staff, give them a pen each, have them sit at a high top, and ask them to fill out the form. Ask them to fill out, how does this business win? How do you get repeat business? And there's only a few boxes. What do we value most here in each other? What are our core values? How do we do that? How do we recover when we make a mistake in a relationship with a guest? What are the five steps in what order they go? You fill out this page here and you'll know instantly what you need to work on next to be a better business. And I'm sure a bunch of folks are listening to this being like, I mean, that sounds great, but I'm working 100 hours a week and I'm losing money every month. Can you describe the correlation between excellence in hospitality and profitability? Yeah. So I don't want to make it sound like we don't work with businesses that are struggling. We do, but there's a criteria with us. It's not just pay the money and come in. You've got to apply and be ready to do what needs to be done. And there's a formula to this. So a lot of businesses in this industry are on the razor's edge, right? They lose 5% a month or they make 5% a month and that goes back and forth. And that is the most insane asset where you have 20, 40, 60 
heads running around, people with knives, it's dark, places open all the time. It makes no sense to me. So businesses that we work with, we have single venues that are, you know, a standard size. So you take a pub, three floors, standard size for any American city, where an average business would do two or three million dollars in there. We have clients that do fourteen and a half million dollars in that property. Oh my God. Right. Right now, well, we can't find good staff. One of my clients has 25 venues and his goal, he just wants to create careers for staff. He's got a lot of kids that people gave up on them elsewhere. So he wants to have 2,030 careers by 2030, right? He only has 500 right now. So he's got to open 75 properties in eight years to achieve his goal. Where is he going to get 1,500 staff? They come to him. He's a great employer, Mm -hmm. right? So the difference between people that are struggling and the top one percenters is night and day, right? There's no correlation between what goes on. My criteria for a venue, you know, looking at stability year round, profitability, I would not be involved with a business that that couldn't make a minimum of 15% net profit. And the way that we ran my books, another thing that my, not my coach, but my board brought to me when I had eight bars and restaurants, we put 10% operational profit into above the line, into a line item. We expected to make 10%. We had to price according to that. We had to deliver according to that. We had to negotiate according to that, right? So when I said we made 18.6%, we made 8.6 below the line and 10% above. That came out every week and went into a bank account. So there's two types of operators, those that hope they make money and those that expect to make money. What are the key differences? Between the 1% and the 99%, because I would argue that the 99% aspire to be the 1%. They're probably working as many hours, probably with the same level of concern, with the best of intentions. What's the difference between the two groups? Yeah, so there's a bunch, but here's a few of the key ones. You know, and I think it was Warren Buffett that said that the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire is millionaires just say no a lot more, right? They're intensely focused on their wheelhouse. And any expansion has to happen in and around that, right? They're not opportunists like a lot of people in this industry are. There's a low bar for entry. It's easy in, impossible to get out for some people in this industry. Difference between good and great is good businesses. These folks own their job. They own it. If you think you own your business, we'd like to say, take a 90-day test, turn your phone off, go on holidays for 90 days and see if you own a business. (laughs) right? If you can't do that, then you own your job. You answer to yourself and every person that wants a paycheck and every guest that walks through the door. I mentioned profit. Like, how do you manage that? What do you expect to do? Like, what meetings do you have around strategic profit? You know, you asked what I was good at before. Another thing I've helped over 500 businesses with is their peak hours performance. 80% of revenue comes in 20% of hours of operation. So you have about 12 to 18 hours a week when 80% of your revenue come. Most of these operators aren't on site. They don't have a strategic plan to constantly raise that revenue ceiling. So the average business I've worked with, you know, and with business of bars, we worked with tens of thousands of bars around the world. But the average one that I've worked with myself personally can easily crank up their revenue ceiling during peak hours, just that 12 to 18 hours a week. They can move that up by 20%. And when you do, typically you double profits because every dollar you take over that is about 70% net profit, right? No further rent. People are already working there. You just figured out how to do that. 
I've got like a 12 step plan. I'm happy to give anyone to say, this is how you do it. There's three major areas and four or five things in each area. And there's no one thing to get a 20% increase, but there's a lot of things that you get one, two and 3% increases in. So they focus on things that make money for them and that sort of thing. The last one I'll give you in regards to these great operators and the good ones that are out there is great operators. What we get our clients to do is to focus on building a tribe of 5,000 raving fans. So you have to be willing to identify inside of only one or two different groups of people. How do you get 5,000 people that become annoying to their friends and family about your business that talk about it? Like when people start focusing on this, their friends and family will come in and say, does he own shares here? Like the way he talks about it's our place. So how do you get 5,000 raving fans? So if you don't have a 10 point or 20 point plan to do that, if you haven't targeted that constituency, you're not looking to bring him in from good regular customer into raving fan, you're not going to do it. These are the sorts of things that 1% are doing. While everyone else, quite honestly, in an industry that 70%, 80% bankruptcy over five years, everyone else is busy going broke, right? Working 100 hours a week to go bankrupt. You're so wise. It seems like through experience, through education, through educating yourself, you've just collected so much knowledge over time. How do you learn? What resources do you use to collect knowledge relative to leadership, business, the industry? So learning for me was the greatest source of shame in my life for 12, 13 years, right? In school, being dyslexic and not being able to read. So learning to read and then learning to learn was a great gift. And we can all learn at a higher level. So I still take programs every couple of years to improve my reading, to improve my retention. I have a learning plan that I update every single year. So for me on my own personally, I take two courses a year, usually in the same field. These courses could range from $1,000 to $20,000 a course. Second thing is I read at least a book a month and I try to do better. When I read because of my dyslexia, and this works for anybody, by the way, to improve their retention, I have a chair I like to sit in. I love the water. I live on the water. So I sit near the water or on my dock. I have headphones on. So when I'm reading and I'm listening to the audiobook at the same time, and I'm scoring the book while I read, mm-hmm. and I've got different color post-it notes, and I dog ear the pages. So it becomes very physical <laughs> in reading. And then I'll pause and I'll read that back. You know, So I see it. I'm reading it. I'm sometimes reading it out loud. I'm hearing it. And then I'm writing. And sometimes I'll write a note about what I just read. Right. Mm-hmm. So your retention just drills in. In addition to that, I belong to two to three groups any year. Right now it's three. So I'm in a group called Black Belt and Boardroom, which is coaches, coaches. My friend Taki Moore runs it out of Australia, but he has a group here in the States and there. It's about 600 coaches, I think, now around the world. And I help him with it as well. I help when he's over here in the States. I run sort of the premium end of it for his members and kind of a cool experience and so forth. I'm in MMT, which is Mastermind Talks, which is a group of 150 entrepreneurs from all over the world. It's hand-selected by a guy named Jason Gaynard. You never know what's going to happen, who's the speakers, the events, and so forth. It's one of the coolest business communities I've ever been a part of. And then I've got a private group. There was seven of us. We lost one of our members to COVID. A dear friend Kevin Hutto passed away last year, but it's seven of us, and it's from the EO Forum playbook. So we've taken on a couple new members. 
and we're getting ready to go to Kelowna, BC, and we'll do an intense three days together. We're together every month in forum style and together uh, three times a year. That's absolutely amazing. I want to talk about a dichotomy that I think is difficult for a lot of folks and was for me for a really long time to wrap their mind around, which is the difference between an expense and an investment. I think most restaurateurs, most entrepreneurs want to get better. They aspire to get better. And so they will read books and take online courses and all of this. But I want you to talk about coaching specifically and masterminds and the benefits of it, because I myself have spent upwards of $36,000 on just a singular coaching platform. And you have to swallow that lump in your throat to do it because it's so much money. But I've 10x that investment easily. Talk to me about that hurdle for you overcoming that hurdle and your return on investment by doing coursework. Well, my general stance on it is, is that in business, as it is in life, you're either going to pay with time or money. I'm almost 50, right? So I've got some great years, a couple of great decades, I hope, ahead of me, but I don't have infinite time and money is pretty easy to generate. And all you need is enough money for the course to get your ROI on that course. So I'll flip it. When I interview people to come and work with me, I'll say, okay, it's going to cost you X. And I said, my goal in working with a coach is to get a three-time ROI. You said you got a 10. Josh, that's awesome. I'm happy with a three, delighted with a 10. Mm -hmm. So I said to them, tell me how you would get a three-time return on investment on this. And they'll say, well, can you do this? This is, yeah, I can show you this. I can do that. I can help you here. But what can you do? How would you implement? Is the money really there in your business? Do you want to talk to your accountant about it and so forth? And if there is a clear path to a, a three times ROI and the coach is offering a money back guarantee and the money back guarantee is I'm guaranteeing myself, not the person who decided they wanted to binge watch Netflix for three months and didn't show up. But if everyone does what they say they're going to do and we've executed on this plan and you get a three times ROI, there's not much to think about. You know, the work had to get done. And if you get the return this year, so if I help take a business that's doing $2 million and they get to two and a half million dollars, and at two million dollars they were making ten percent, so two hundred grand, and at two and a half they're making twenty percent. You start to add this up, and then that's yours to keep on going, right? Then I'm yeah, I'm out, for sure. or we're working on something else. So that's how I justify it. Some things that I learn though, and I pay for parenting. There's no real. I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on four kids on parenting courses, and again, I'm going to learn with time or money or pain, right? So I'd rather avoid the pain. And it's worth paying. But I think with most business propositions, there should be a pretty clear path to getting your money back. And if there isn't, don't do it. Find someone else or find another path. Where do you think the industry's headed? What guidance are you offering your clients? Well, I think this industry, I think right now, it's just like the day after the storm, right? Like people are really still figuring out what's going on. Put it this way. I, I don't think that computers are ever going to replace people for some of the obvious reasons that we love people, right? Like, and I think that there's been a real frustration by operators, partly because of their own doing. We blame the generation a couple down from us that they don't do things like we did and they don't care as much and so forth. But the fact is, most people offer horrific training and even worse coaching on the job. And then they're blaming others for their results, right? So if you have a business right now and I can order from an iPad, right? Yeah, it's more efficient. They're going to save a bit of money. A runner is going to come out and drop the food off. 
But I went to a restaurant the other day and the, the server came out and they said that talking about the menus and changes that they'd made, and told me a story behind one of the recipes. And that's what I went with. And I tell you, I believe that food tasted better because of the emotional connection to the story and the business and the whole deal. And I know I'll be back there again. I already told my girlfriend I can bring my kids up. You know what I mean? Like you can underutilize people and then maybe it's better to be more machine driven. But all of that aside, I really think that the COVID gave us an opportunity to see what it's like to not be able to gather, to not be in a bar or restaurant. And you know what? There's a lot of businesses that I haven't been to a bank in five years, right? Way before COVID. And I'm happy not to go to a bank because it was never a great experience for me. Yeah. I missed getting my coffee at a diner. I missed going to a cool little place for lunch on the water. I missed my friends. I missed all of that sort of stuff. And I think that that's put a premium on what's happening. Sadly, I think we're about to go through a really deep recession, but our industry traditionally, you know, unless you're at the high end of it, has done pretty well during recession. So I think for the top 10% of operators, good days are ahead and the bottom 90%, it's always been tough. The restaurant industry is filled with these unspoken rules and traditions of how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? Well, when I left that truck stop in Canada and went to work in London, he passed away while I was in London. And I flew back to a town of 2,000 people. And the estimates were that over 2,000 people were trying to get to his funeral, right? All the customers, all the, it's just the biggest funeral my town's ever seen. And I, I raised that because I asked myself, how am I going to be remembered? What am I doing for people? Like, why did so many people care? And I could only speak for myself that he absolutely changed my life. So that's the opportunity, right? If we say we're in the hospitality industry that we want to affect the way people feel, I think we should start with the people that work for us and find people that you're happy to serve, you feel honored to serve, and to take them to the next level in their life. And if they stay with you and work with you for two years or three years or five, it really matters. Right? When people see your business name on their resume, they have a leg up in this world and they take with them all that experience. I can't tell you how many managers I had interviewed over the years that said 10 years GM experience. They didn't have 10 years. They had one year, 10 times over. They never developed. They never learned new skills. They never took more people to the next level with them. They just kept doing the same stuff year after year. And I think that's the opportunity for us is yeah, continue to serve our guests, but to really take care of each other. That's Sean Finter. For more on Sean and his program, visit barlaunch.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.